Hello and welcome to Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today is a returning guest, Mr. ML Kennedy. How you doing today, sir? Never been better, boss. That's good to hear. I appreciate that you are lying to me. <laughs> okay, so maybe my identity's been stolen a few times in the past six months, but other than that, I can't complain. Well, I mean, you're such a handsome gentleman and a published author. Who wouldn't want to be you, honestly? <sighs> For various definitions of the term published. But <laughs> in any case... I have been I have been fishing for topics in general. This is this should not be a surprise to anybody who've noticed that I've been kind of wonky with the actual update schedule in the past few months. But the topic that you brought to me was one that I wasn't a hundred percent sure how to take at first. So I I kind of feel like I I want you to walk me through a basic idea of what we're talking about here since you have a better understanding of it, I think, than I do. Well, this is just something that's kind of been uh, bouncing around in the back of my head for some time now. And uh, a Facebook discussion with Lucard kind of like put it in the forefront. I have a little bit of, of a spiel, if you don't mind me, just going off tangent to get on, on topic. If that makes sense to you? Go ahead. The floor is yours. All right. All right, so we're living in this weird time right now where everything is kind of becoming the internets. Like, people don't watch TV, they watch shows on the internets. People don't go to the movies, they watch things on the internet. They play games on the internet. And as such, I think media is becoming kind of completely blended in a way that we haven't seen previously. For example, comics now are movies. So about 15 years ago, superhero comics turned into movies. And I'm not saying that they made more comic book movies. I mean, they did that. But the style of comics went through uh, what they call decompression. A lot of people saw the cinematic style of that original run of The Authority, and they said, well, I, I can do that. I should do that. The comics I grew up reading were mostly self-contained stories in an issue, sometimes even two or three. And I remember a friend lending me the first few issues of New Avengers in 2005 or so, and thinking, well, these are the Avengers, and it took them like four issues to have a minor fight with Electro. They didn't really do anything in these issues. Everything was just kind of happening as though it were storyboards in a movie. In about a page was about a minute instead of a page being basically the entire origin of the Fantastic Four. So essentially, it was like watching a Dragon Ball Z fight. A, a lot like that. A lot like that. Okay. And I mean, even the comics that I've read recently that I like, like. For example, the first uh, trade of Ms. Marvel. You finish the first trade, and you still don't really know how her powers work, or exactly what they are, or exactly how she got them. And, and I'm not saying this is bad or good, but it's just it's kind of odd that this is what seems to have happened. Now, in a similar vein, TV shows are basically movies now, too. Like, if you look at the indie movies of the 90s, they wouldn't be indie movies right now they would be tv shows and we're seeing tv shows made out of movies just kind of continuously i mean uh between fargo and they just announced that they're going to make a get shorty the tv show and tv shows as movies they it works out better for them than it does for other media i the shows that people care about the shows that people talk about are the ones that are basically 10 to 50 100 hour long movies and that's kind of a culture shift there, too, because TV was always this comfort food, uh, you know, a formulaic thing, where the status quo wasn't going to change, and the characters weren't going to die, so the stakes were never very high. You could watch an episode of the A-Team, and you didn't have to worry about watching the three ones before. 
Right, even even with shows that did have any type of appreciable change, like long-running shows such as The Cosby Show, for an example, usually speaking, they would all be self-contained in a season to make it easier for syndication. Yeah, exactly. And even things like uh, like The X-Files, they had a continuing storyline, but there would also be a lot of episodes that were just one-offs that didn't affect that main storyline. Basically, I think that everything about that changed with The Sopranos, where we've had the kind of drive-in rules apply of anybody can die at any time. I guess that's not 100% true because anybody can die so long as it's the mid-season finale or one of the last two season episodes of the season. So along with comics and TV becoming movies, games became movies. Not all of them, but a lot. You know, I think there are a lot of games where the emphasis is on story in lieu of gameplay or game mechanics or the game itself. Rich Evans, I don't know if you do uh, any red letter media. He has I'm this whole aware of it. Yeah, yeah. So he has this whole screed about oh, so the, how everybody's like, well, I've got this idea for a game. It's steampunk, and you're an Arthurian knight, and you fight werewolves. And they're like, oh, what kind of game is that? Uh, I don't know, third person shooter. Or, you know, a guy, he loses his daughter in the zombie apocalypse and connects with a young girl in a fatherly way, ultimately having to choose between her and the world. Well, what type of game is it? Uh, Third-person shooter? And and so on. They just kind of like, well, I've got this idea for a movie that they wouldn't let me make into a movie, so let's make it a third-person shooter. And, I don't know, I as somebody who grew up with the NES and things like that, you just find that the games, so many games are loaded with quick times and cut scenes and all these things that are telling you you don't have to play right now. You know, and I, I mean, it's nothing wrong with you if you like these games or things like that, but there's really little difference to me between watching a game like Nathan Drake and playing it. You know, I have an equal effect on the outcome. You know, so we're going to talk about that some more. But... Finally, I just wanted to say that movies aren't really movies anymore, specifically like the big blockbuster tentpole ones. Movies are becoming less like movies and and more like these games. So, for instance, watching a movie like Rogue One or Suicide Squad feels like watching somebody play a video game. You've got hordes of faceless enemies. Usually there's a big boss that has to be defeated, action scenes that take forever where nobody gets tired or hurt. Characters aren't growing or changing, and in a lot of cases, they don't even have a clear motivation for what they're doing. So I've got some other notes and things like that, but I'm kind of like monologuing right now, so. No, I feel like that's I feel like that's a good qualifying point to start us off with as far as it relates to like what we had discussed before. And I guess I'm kind of interested in like we've established examples, we've established what we're here to talk about. I guess the main thing that I would be interested in is, at least from your perspective, as far as the film aspect of things goes, why did this happen? Ah, so, hmm. Well, that's an interesting situation. Because, like, based on how you've qualified it, I can just off the top of my head kind of enumerate why this happened for video games. So I'm, I'm curious if you have an idea like where you could go as far as why this happened in film just in general what made this a thing that's going on well i think i think it's twofold you know i think there is some influence of video games it's also the advent of cgi so when video game based movies started to get popular developers realized that you know if you just played through the movie itself you'd finish the game in 90 minutes 
And that way you could just, you know, rent it at the video store. You wouldn't have to pony up the 50 bucks to buy it. So, I mean, what do you do? You kind of pad it out. You add weird levels. But a lot of what you do is you add cannon fodder enemies. So Die Hard, for instance, John McClane usually kills between 10 to 13 people in a Die Hard movie, right? Die Hard 2, he kills about double that. But if you are fighting 24 enemies in a video game, that's just enough time to master the learning curve of how to play the game. So you throw in 100 enemies instead of a dozen or two dozen. And with those games, you're not going to have like a meaningful conversation or get a lot of character development or a lot of... You're probably not going to have a training montage in an NES game. You just kind of have to be killing things. And right now we've got a whole generation of people that kind of grew up doing that. So it feels like, well, you have to throw in a lot of, a lot, a lot of cannon fodder, a lot of enemies to fight. So as such, the third act of an action movie kind of means that everything has to either explode or all the heroes have to face uh, in murder faceless people for 20 to 40 minutes. You know, the Avengers, which is a good movie, they're fighting a horde of aliens who aren't really characters, who don't really have motivation, and it's perfectly okay to murder them. You know, but there's a story there, at least, where they're learning to fight as a team. And then the second Avengers movie, they're fighting a horde of killer robots, basically just to keep them busy until they have until they get to the bigger fight, the boss fight at the end, as it were. Right, and you compare that to, say, something like the original Spider-Man, where it's basically Spider-Man does little things where he beats criminals and whatnot, but they're never meant as part of any sort of unifying force or any structure of that nature. His main obstacle, his main goal is always the Green Goblin. He's not fighting hundreds of the Green Goblin's cronies, he's fighting the Green Goblin, or he's just busting random criminals. Yeah, and that that case is particularly interesting, too, because I feel like Spider-Man movies work well on a heroic level because Spider-Man basically turns his back on violence in the third act of those movies in order to either let the villain defeat himself, as in the case with the Green Goblin, or in Dr. Octopus, basically talk him down and get him back, come to come back to his senses. And, I mean, that's not, like, as action movie, but that's a kind of a, a better lesson morally for a, hero, a movie where you're supposed to, supposed to accept this man as a hero. You know, I, there are instances where it doesn't quite happen like this. Like, Doctor Strange had an ending where he actually outsmarted the villain, but there was also a giant battle between two forces that took place before he could outsmart the enemy, you know? It's like they, they had almost the Superman 2 ending to Doctor Strange, where, you know, it's just like, oh, it's just going to be a trick, and he doesn't have to have the massive fight. Superman 2, of course, had the massive fight, but it was, you know, one on two, or three. But uh, it just, uh, for some reason, nobody is really satisfied with that thing anymore. I'm not really sure. It could be that we're spending all of our time uh, killing faceless hordes, but, I mean, at least it's all fantasy violence and not, you know, actual killing people, so what can I say? Yeah, I mean... It, it kind of feels like films in the 80s, films in the 90s, had villains that were meaningful in a lot of respects. And even if there was gratuitous violence, that that violence generally meant something. Going back to Die Hard as an example of like an actual film that we hold up as something that's meaningful and matters. Whenever John McClane killed someone, it was important. It was registered as important. You had a rough approximation of the person that he was killing and some time was spent on that. 
Well, and he he paid a price, really, with everything that he did in that movie. Like, he got hurt, he cut his feet up, his, you know, he got blown up and flew off the building. He's He looks like shit by the end of that movie. Yeah. It's and it's strange. We don't really see the the vulnerable hero as much anymore. Which I mean, granted, has less to do with with games, but it kind of does. I feel like you know you uh, w- with a shooter, you get okay just by behind uh, hiding behind a chest high wall, and then oh, everything's kind of better again. You know. Yeah, and I mean, like even when you're in a position in gaming where your character, your hero character, is in some way inconvenienced mechanically, that doesn't necessarily translate particularly well. Certainly you get situations where Solid Snake is being tortured for information, but after he escapes, he's mostly fine. In Metal Gear Solid 2, Raiden gets stripped down naked and has to fight off all of these Metal Gears, but when he gets to the fight at the end, he's mostly fine. Bayonetta has to deal with various things that she has to deal with, but by and large, through the majority of the game, she's mostly fine. Dante and Devil May Cry, for the majority of the game, is mostly fine. There's there's never a sequence where they look like Spider-Man looked at the end of the first Spider-Man movie. Yeah, and occasionally they will have something like that in a game where you're kind of like limping along, but, I mean, nobody wants to play that. So, I mean, I think that's like the important distinction between a game and a movie is like you should be seeing that in a movie, but you don't necessarily want that in a game. I mean, it could be an interesting part of the dynamic of gameplay, like, uh, you know, Batman has been poisoned by such and so and can only move at half speed. But it's, uh, you know, you definitely don't want that for the entire game. You don't want your uh, your hero to have his arm chopped off and then you have to fight with your left arm the entire time. So this is kind of off topic, but I was just uh, thinking about this with the, the discussion of the video game battles in movies. Uh, have you seen the new Guardians of the Galaxy? I have not. Okay, so Guardians of the Galaxy kind of plays with the, this trope. And it's kind, of, it's kind of the best way to do it, too. So they steal uh, you know, a MacGuffin at the beginning of the movie, and they're being chased uh, by what looks like hundreds of ships, hundreds of little tiny ships. And uh, Rocket shoots these enemy ships and just revels in the fact that he is murdering dudes, which is, you know, basically the opposite of, you know, killing the faceless hordes in the Avengers or Suicide Squad or what have you. But then it's revealed that the ships are all drones that are controlled by a bunch of these, like, tall, beautiful players or beautiful people who are literally playing video games. They're in these old-style arcade cabinets, kind of like, you know, the old-style motorcycle games or things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're basically playing Galaga on the other side of the battle. And it's really, really interesting. I uh, I recommend that movie. I, I mean, I, granted, that movie's already made, you know, half a billion dollars, so it doesn't need my recommendation, but... Well, sure. But I, I feel like that's interesting in concept because it kind of sort of puts a visual criticism on this concept in a lot of respects. Yeah, it, I, it really does. It's uh, It's like, it's all just Galaga right now. I feel like I feel like if you needed any more convincing that James Gunn was a great director, that's that's kind of it right there in a lot of respects. Yeah, he's a well, and it's great that his movie happens outside the greater greater Marvel cinematic universe. They're like barely connected, and as such, that give lets him you know kill off a character or let his movies really have a beginning a middle and an end which you don't see with these marvel and dc movies 
you know, it's they're not going to kill off Captain America when you know that Captain America 3 is scheduled for a 20-whatever release. Okay, granted, they already released Captain America 3, so I'm a little off there, but... I feel like, on the alternative side of things, it's kind of easy to trace how all of this started happening with video games, and you can mostly, to tie it back into the conversation that I had with Alex on the History of Adventure Games, tie this into Myst. Because at the time Myst came out, Myst was groundbreaking. You know, we had never seen a game that did what Myst did, that had the sort of visual and aesthetic impact that Myst had. I believe I had it on the Sega Saturn. I think the Sega Saturn version is what I had it on. I uh, I was terrible at it, but I got to wander around and it looked very pretty. Yeah. And it's, it's to be fair, the puzzles in that game are fucking dog shit at this point. Like, yeah. I... I, I go back to that now, and I'm like, how the fuck were people supposed to figure this shit out? But aesthetically, that game was a masterpiece for its time. Mm-hmm. And you could see the wheels turning in game developers' heads of what they could do with the tech that Mist represented. We had been trying to make games that were movies, essentially, for years at that point. Dragon Age existed in arcades as early as the mid-80s mm-hmm. and was, was basically the equivalent of an interactive movie that was literally about 30 minutes long. Through the power of post-production, I'm just going to step in here real quick and note that I meant Dragon's Lair. This is apparently a problem that I'm having in my brain for some reason where I keep confusing the two names of those games. So, for the purposes of this conversation, anytime you hear me say Dragon Age from this point onward, assume that I mean Dragon's Lair, unless I sound like I'm talking about an RPG or something. Thank you. And other games borrowed from that core concept, whether it was Night Trap, which was literally just a live-action version of what Dragon Age was trying to do, or things like Corpse Killer and Sewer Shark, where there were actual gameplay segments in between the heavy cutscenes. Yeah, or Dracula Unleashed. That was my favorite. I was terrible at that game. Yeah, that's that's also a good example of that kind of thing. And it's, I feel like Dracula Unleashed kind of comes from the Myst School, where you, you had this framework that allowed people to do the cutscenes, but also allowed them to have a legitimately solid game behind it. And once everybody saw that you could do that for years afterward, there were shitloads of FMV-based adventure games. Yeah. And everybody learned this lesson from Myst badly, whether it was Phantasmagoria or Gabriel Knight or Harvester. It's, well, and, you know, uh, it's odd. Uh, uh, There was even an FMV, well, sort of FMV version of a football game for the Sega CD with, uh, it was just the 49ers versus the Dallas Cowboys. You'd select a play and they'd play a random video clip. It was basically just like a coaching simulator where you'd watch clips of games. It was it was very odd. It was only somewhat interactive. When you said Dragon Age, did you mean Dragon's Lair? That's the first one that I was Dragon's Lair, yes. Yes, Dragon's Lair is what I meant there. You're correct. Yeah, that's... Uh, I think I own all three of those games, too. Well, no, two of those, and then it's uh, the space, space one. The, yeah, the all the Don Bluth video games. Man... You could tell that they used uh, some developers as actors in that, right? Like, yeah. Oh, my God. The princess has, 
like an accent as though she worked in the Sargento Cheese Factory. It's like, <laughs> oh, to slay the dragon. It's like, oh, no, that's not sexy. Yeah, and that that was clearly what they were going for at that point. It, w- it was definitely a different time just all the way around. Uh, <sighs> act- actors are expensive, yeah. Yeah, even, well, that was the other thing. Like, these games started making money, and all of a sudden, people started realizing, fuck, we can use actual actors in this shit. So, all of a sudden, you started seeing these actors who were basically slumming it in their career showing up in video games. Yeah, uh, Mark Hamill was was it in Wing Commander? Wing Commander, I think? yep, yep. Yeah, and uh, gosh, for Night Trap they got was it Dana Plato? Yes. Oh, gosh, I could be a doctor if I remembered stuff other than this nonsense, right? <laughs> Basically, I mean, just so many other like um, Hell, a cyberpunk thriller had I believe Dennis Hopper and Stephanie Seymour in it. God, that was a bad game, but like that was a big deal. Christopher Walken was in a video game at one point. Uh, they they just... So many FMV-based video games started actually featuring legitimate top-tier, or at least at one point in time, top-tier actors and actresses alongside acted cutscenes. And, like, for developers, that was great. That was, we're making miniature movies, kind of. And then eventually other games started figuring out how to replicate that tech. Not necessarily with FMV, but in a way that presented a cinematic experience. And once Resident Evil and Final Fantasy VII specifically came out, that was kind of when we started seeing the idea of cinematic experiences in other games. Like, when Alex and I talked about it in the Adventure Game podcast, this is the point where Adventure Games kind of die for a few years. But the other side of that that we didn't talk about comes into play in this podcast because this is where every video game decided it kind of wanted to be a movie for a few years. So you got every JRPG is doing this shit forever at this point. Like, Final Fantasy VII broke JRPGs aesthetically forever. Well, and it's once you decide to make your game more cinematic, you're severely limiting your agency as a player because it has to match with the actions on the screen that have been either pre-recorded or pre-rendered. And there's only so much storyline treeing that makes sense from both a financial and like a time standpoint. Like you can't have a hundred different options for what happens when you have when you kill this person before this person, it's not like, you know, Mario, you can kill the turtles in any order you want, and it's not going to affect anything because it doesn't have anything beyond your princess was in another castle, you know? Right. And so the problem is, is that, yeah, it, it definitely removes a lot of player agency. Some games do manage to work around this, but in those cases, for those games specifically, Agency is the core point. Like, a game like the original Deus Ex is not necessarily trying to be a cinematic experience. Warren Spector is not approaching that game and saying, I want to make a movie, necessarily. He, he's trying to make an experience that is about player agency, about branching narrative, first and foremost. And you can see how, if you compare the original Deus Ex to Deus Ex Human Revolution, that the aesthetics and the ethos 
Warren Spector applied to the original game aren't there anymore. They're trying to make a cinematic experience first, a narrative-driven experience first, and a game in which player agency matters second, if even at all. So what you start getting is, you start getting this situation where a lot of developers just want to make these games that advance a narrative, even if that means that they have to do all of the cool shit in cutscenes in order to get that narrative across. Well, and yeah, and you're kind of dealing with a double-edged sword whenever you deal with the branching uh, narratives as part of the game mechanic. I think, you know, uh, Mass Effect 3 is probably going to be the big example there where the ending choices were so limited based on all the different decisions that people had made up to that point. Like, that was a big source of the upset there. It's like you've made however many decisions throughout the course of maybe three games and all of it doesn't really seem to matter beyond these final choices, you know? Yeah, they really... I feel like that's a good example of how giving a player too much agency or false agency can be a problem. And I feel like that also kind of lends itself to a certain extent into the modern Telltale video games. No matter what choices you ultimately make in the original Walking Dead, the very first one, the only choices that actually matter end up being, for those who haven't played it, spoilers, I guess, does Clementine shoot Lee, or does she leave Lee to die? Because either way, he's going to die. He's infected with zombiosis or whatever. There, There is no way out of it. Does she kill him, or does he just die in that room? Well, yeah, and especially, I mean, if you're dealing with something episodic like that, the episodes have to match up at least enough to be the same game. So it's 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 very odd. Yeah, and it's 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 frustrating because we get to this point where the choices that you're going to make inevitably have very little significant impact from one game to the next. And the choices that you make ultimately all kind of end up leading to the same position. It's all roads lead to Rome, basically. And yeah. I know a lot of people enjoy those games, but even people who enjoy those games, if I if you have conversations with them, like I talked to Aaron about uh, the second season of Telltale, uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead, and there's a choice that you can make, there's a sequence of choices you can make towards the end, where this one character sort of runs afoul of Clementine, and you can be a complete and utter dick to him, or you can be like reasonably nice to him. And regardless of which way you do it, it doesn't matter. He ultimately shoots Clementine and leaves her to die. Uh, maybe maybe that's, maybe that's, we're looking at this all wrong. Maybe this is a feature and not a bug. And the main lesson of these games is that uh, choices are meaningless and free will is a lie. Life is pain and suffering. Choice is meaningless. Enjoy Arby's? Yeah, nihilist Arby's. There we go. I uh, am always way behind on on games, especially the more expensive ones. I think... So to tell you this thing, I, I I think the last game I played a lot was Sleeping Dogs just recently because I got it as part of a, a bundle for like, you know, three for the price of $10. And that game was particularly frustrating because it was very like storyline driven. You've got to go on this date or maybe that date and you can you get like different levels of like how good of a cop you are versus how good of a thief you are i mean the the whole thing is just a, like a grand theft auto clone basically but 
the storyline doesn't change no matter whether I did all the cop stuff super well or, I mean, I basically spent half the game just murdering cops and I got into my car and whenever there was supposed to be a big gang fight, I just got in the car and I drove over all the gang members and it didn't really seem to affect anything. Of course, I think I have another complaint about that game, but that that's for another time, I think, so... Anyway, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I guess that was pointless. I'm off on a tangent. I don't know, man. No, I actually got a phone call like right in the middle of that, so oh, okay. I had to go on mute to answer. <laughs> no, but it's it's. I actually feel like that's a good point because Grand Theft Auto, in a lot of respects, is kind of the king of the shit where important stuff happens and you don't really have anything to do with a lot of it. Like, you know, you'll drive in and you'll do a thing or whatever. You'll commit some type of crime, but you were always going to commit that crime. The actions that you perform outside of the story missions mean dick. And it's, it's, that kind of comes back to the whole ludonarrative distance conversation with Matt, where you, you have, like, this super serious dude who also commits wacky cartoon violence, and the wacky cartoon violence in no way resonates with the rest of the game. Whatever choices you choose to make outside of the narrative, or in some cases even within the narrative, don't have any real impact on how things work. And it, it's it's by design to a certain extent because the world of whatever Earth that this exists on it is kind of meant to be so super corrupt that a person who just got out of jail for like being involved in a bank robbery was in jail for years can murder hundreds of police officers, get shot to death, and get thrown right back out on the street with just without all of their weapons, like, five minutes later. And nobody thinks this is weird or a little bit unbalanced as far as a, you know, punishment-fits-the-crime kind of situation. It's, it's very disconnected from reality and its concept, and it, it's very much about the idea of trying to advance a specific narrative to tell the story that they want to tell, having punishments that exist within the confines of the game that drive along the narrative, but then having actual punishments that exist outside of that that nobody gives a fuck about. Like in, you know, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, the, the main threat that's hanging over the protagonist's head at various points is the fact that a corrupt police officer is probably going to send him to jail for the rest of his life. And it's, okay, but I can ride into the middle of downtown, whip out a rocket launcher, and blow people the fuck up, and I'll be back out on the street five minutes later. What the fuck does this guy have on me that is worse than what I'm doing in the middle of town right now? Yeah, that's really the, the question. And I feel like if you want to advance games as an art form and advance the storytelling aspect of it, maybe you can come up with something that, you know, make it so that maybe you do pop out of jail you know, instantly after that, or you pay this off. But what would the consequences be for the rest of the world if that were the case, you know? Like, would you just have a bunch of serial killers walking around San Andreas as well? Or, I mean, would people just be lighting buildings on fire? It, I feel, you know, it's like you've got to take everything that happens to kind of its absurdist point. And, I mean, I would be more interested in the in the metafiction of that game than the game itself. I, uh, maybe there's something wrong with me, though. Yeah, and I, well, no, I mean, I, I would honestly be really interested in seeing the behind-the-scenes sort of shit, too, in theory. 
Though in practice, we have a television show on now about like superhero premiums or insurance premiums as it relates to superheroes. And I have no fucking interest in watching that, despite the fact that that was actually a thing I was interested in seeing like years ago. Though I think that's probably because they treat it like a comedy and a farcical thing rather than like talking about the serious implications of it. Man, I enjoyed Powerless. I wanted to watch those last two episodes, but they canceled the show and wouldn't even release them on Hulu. It wasn't very good, but it was good enough. Man, I I don't know. It wasn't one of those like CBS sitcoms where everybody makes the same joke and the laugh track chimes in every five minutes. I'm not really going to defend it as, you know, a great show or anything like that, but it was, you know, watchable. All the people on there were likable. I mean, you got Ellen Tudyk, you've got Danny Pudi, and uh, was it Ron Funches? Oh, God, Ron Funches. <laughs> like, man, I, w- I-, I did kind of enjoy that show. It was, you know, it was nice to watch after working, like, 15 hours and being very tired and too tired for anything else. I don't necessarily know that I would consider that a ringing endorsement, but... <laughs> I mean, the, the, the core point is more that the idea, the core idea behind this universe is that in a lot of cases, the weird questions that they have to leave unanswered because of the way that their mechanics work often end up making for more interesting conversations and ideas than the actual stories that they're trying to tell because of how weird these universes have to be to support the things that the game does. Well, and that's something that comics has actually got good at it about the in about the seventies. They're like, well, why do all these Spider-Man villains and you know and Iron Man villains have these magical costumes that help them, you know, be super villains? Why don't they just sell, sell the patents? And well, it turns out that this guy was selling that to them. I believe uh, like Justin Hammer was supplying armor for these bad guys, and uh, like every once in a while a comic book writer will come along that's wants to like kind of close these plot holes and you know sometimes they create three more but it's uh it's an interesting thing you can do with with that medium yeah and i feel like the problem is is that in a lot of cases we're kind of in this situation where in the world of film even with the way that they choose to do things there's a certain degree of expectation that you only get 90 minutes 120 minutes 180 minutes of stuff that you can commit to celluloid per year month whatever you're only given a set amount of time to tell a story so if shit falls to the wayside they just they generally try to justify it or not care about it and then move on the best possible shows usually attempt to justify this stuff in a way that it makes sense. Lost doesn't, but by that (laughs) point in time, you've invested eight years in the show and you're too far gone for it to fucking matter. In the case of comic books and video games, well, with comic books, you have so many different writers are being attached to things that have existed for 60 years. Prior to, I want to say, 2008, 9, 10, whatever it was, writers would generally be given a turn because you were constantly cycling writers in and out of different books and new writers would want to bring new things to the table. So long as there was some way to justify a profit off of it, and they would consistently tell different stories because they would want to tell whatever story it was that had been rattling around in their brains from when they were a fan. 
but they would also, you know, kind of try to justify stuff within the universe. Once comic book companies realized that it didn't matter if they made money or not, which for Marvel you can trace to the exact moment that they did the Brand New Day storyline, and for DC, I would probably imagine was about a year or two before New 52, if I had to venture a guess. Mm-hmm writers ultimately be a- became able to just tell whatever story they fucking wanted, regardless of whether it made any kind of sense, and they would just go back and retroactively justify it if they needed to later. So now you've got Spider-Man, the the guy who owns a multi-billion dollar corporation and is trying to fuck Hawkeye's ex-wife, or Captain America, Nazi. Oh man, is that what's happening in Spider-Man now? Yes, and Mary Jane is on the Iron Man cast. Don't even fucking get me started. I I will be here literally the rest of the day. Well, but, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it sucks and I hate it. But here's the thing. With film and with television, generally speaking, a showrunner or a film runner is given anywhere from an hour to 26 hours of time that they can commit to something. So all the ideas have to be as good as they're going to be. With comic books, you're constantly cycling writers in and out. So even if something sucks, usually the next writer will come in and fix it up until about five or six years ago. Now everything is handed down from on high, and comics are kind of sort of getting into the problem that video games are getting into. When it's a a small comic nobody knows anything about, like an Archer and Armstrong or a Ms. Marvel, you can tell whatever story you want to tell, and it's fine. When it's a big comic, you're kind of falling into the situation that games are in now. All the people who are in charge have the keys to the kingdom. You can't tell a story if it isn't the story that they want you to tell. So you're in this situation where you're not really going to see an experimentally narrative Grand Theft Auto. You're not going to see a Grand Theft Auto that justifies itself in a way that other Grand Theft Autos haven't. Because the same 20 or so people are on the writing staff and will forever be on the writing staff. And if they quit, they'll just get another 20 or so people to do things the same way that they always did. Halo will always fucking be Halo. Assassin's Creed will always fucking be Assassin's Creed. Because the people who own these have been telling this same story for years and will want to continue telling the same story. And if they don't, well, there are plenty of reminders as to why that doesn't work. Because look at what happened when they rebooted Devil May Cry or Splatterhouse. There's there's no incentive for them to ever change the structures. And if you complain about it, they will literally come out on television and they will tell you that entire institutions that talk about these games do not matter. Well, and and with that, I think with video games, with with uh, comic books and movies and things like that, uh, in those instances, you're dealing with a really valuable intellectual property that you, people aren't willing to gamble with, which is why you know so many movies will play it safe. They let, they know like oh well we'll need the big CGI battle at the end because it's a it's an action movie or it's a fantasy movie and that's what that's what it needs now you know wasn't that weird like for some reason the third uh, act of an action movie that means that everything or no not the uh, like the fantasy movies like people started you know after you spend more than like. I don't know, maybe $70 million on a movie. It has to have the big CGI battle at the end. Like even The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know that's going back quite a few years now. Or the Sam Raimi Oz movie. It's just like, oh, well, this is a thing we have to plug in because we need to be able to show it in the trailer. 
because we're spending this much money on it and we don't want to take any chance. People expect these sorts of things. I want to say Alice in Wonderland kind of did that too, didn't it? I never watched that. Man, I gave up on Tim Burton after uh, Sleepy Hollow, honestly. Oh, you know, it's weirdest. Okay, I'm going to pull it back to our last podcast. It was super fucking weird in the new Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters had this whole big kung fu action scene with a bunch of CGI ghosts where they're punching and shooting ghosts. And I still don't even understand what was going on there because they weren't even trapping the ghosts. They just seemed to be killing the ghosts, which I I don't know what the hell was happening there. And that is not what the original IP of Ghostbusters is about at all, you know? But again, that movie cost $140 million, so you've got to end it with a big CGI action scene. Yeah, and it's 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 even the stuff that's that's coming out based off of other properties or from the lessons that other things have learned over the years seems to mostly be learning its lessons from video games that have learned their lessons from movies. Which like I don't know where you would even begin to point to for this, but Talking about Ghostbusters as an example, yeah, the end sequence of that film, and I didn't even see the movie, and I know this, because it was ruined by the fucking trailers. There's a big involved sequence where they just fight all of these fucking ghosts, which was not what the original movie was. The original movie was four people standing on top of a building, not killing the monster that they showed up to kill, and then having to deal with the destructor form, which was neat and interesting. And the end of the Ghostbusters film now is big fucking battle against all the ghosts. I don't have to see Wonder Woman to know that it's, you know, a big fucking battle at the end with a lot of people involved with her fighting whoever the supervillain is at the end of that movie. I will say, however, uh, and first off, okay, the Ghostbusters, not only do they have the big action scene, then they literally fight the Ghostbusters logo, which is kind of uh, telling. Uh, but I, I was told, I haven't seen Wonder Woman yet, that there are scenes in a superhero movie of two characters just talking to each other and like human beings that are quiet. So I've got to check it out and see if it actually, you know, appears to be a, a movie starring human beings with a be- beginning, middle and end, which would make it the best DC mar- movie in probably, what, 15 years? I'm sure. Well, I I don't personally care for any of the Dark Knight films for much the same reasons that you don't care for them. But we will establish that there are people that like the first two films, or at least the second film in this series, and that's fine. But the third film in this series actively kind of comes back to what we're talking about here, where they decided to end that trilogy with... A giant battle. Lots of people fighting in fucking Gotham City, and it's... it's... Hey, at least it wasn't CGI, though. It didn't make any sense. And it wasn't really helped by the fact that it wasn't CGI, but it wasn't CGI. Yeah, it's just, it's frustrating because you could kind of sort of see superhero movies doing dumb shit like that to a certain extent, but it was more meaningful when they were doing them back in the 80s and the 90s. Like, I can imagine, based on conversations we've had about your opinions of what Batman should and should not be, that the original Tim Burton Batmans were probably not your favorite things in general. No, I liked uh, Batman Returns a lot when I was a kid, and I can't really even watch it as an adult because the character motivations don't make sense from one scene to the next. Batman just straight up murders dudes and mows them down with a machine gun. It's, it's very odd. So Team Phantasm and Adam West, that's, uh, those are the two I like. Fair. 
But my thing is, I can still look at the original Batman films up until the third one, and I can sort of establish that they are, at the very least, not necessarily falling into a cookie-cutter sort of evolution. Hell, you know what? I don't like Joel Schumacher, but even Joel Schumacher's Batman movies were interesting in their own fucked-up way. And they don't necessarily go the same way that you would expect them to. At the end of the first Batman movie, Batman does fight Joker's goons, sure. But by and large, he has to contend with a Joker who is actually able to do damage to him. And the final fight that they have is as much a psychological war as it is a physical one due to Batman having information that the Joker does not have. Yeah, and what's interesting, like... I would think about a movie like that uh, being made today, and it just it wouldn't happen like that at all. You know, yeah, it would be Batman fights through all of his dudes. They get to the end. There's two minutes of dialogue, and then punch face. Let's see who gets knocked out first. Yep, and uh, there's no way they would have let the Joker get killed off in this first appearance of his movie either. You know, it's like you know you've got to set it up for the next movie. I mean, back back then you weren't really expecting. A, a sequel to happen necessarily i mean granted every action movie of the 80s got these sequel after sequel after sequel but uh i don't know maybe i've got to jump back to the 70s my superhero movies were always you know ready for sequels but you know it, it felt like anybody could really get killed off and they didn't have to be faithful to the comics so they were free to be actual movies with beginnings and middles and ends so but, I mean, you're not really going to get that with any any sort of intellectual property today because, well, you've got to plan the Star Wars movies out until the year 2030 and have a new Star Wars movie out every year. Can we talk about Rogue One for a second? I have not seen it. Knock yourself out. All right. So I'm going to try to, like, uh, there'll be some spoilers, but nothing, nothing major. Uh, Rogue One is probably the movie that I've seen in the past year that, I think it would be way better off to be a video game than a movie. I mean, in true video game form, everything in the movie is beige, brown, and gray, but that's that's beyond the point. So the main character of the movie is uh, Jin Erso, who would make just the quintessential video game protagonist. She's got the personality of a puppet. You know, she's a neutral mask. If the character were played by Mila Jovovich, she would be used to test uh, the Kuleshov effect. See... What makes like Samus and Link and Mario great protagonists in video games is that they have no detailed personalities. So you project yourself onto the character. I will I will note that in film that this is a common thing too. Uh, Harry Potter has no discernible personality beyond whiny Pratt. And if you if you can define a single characteristic about Neo that is memorable, go fuck yourself. You're a liar. <laughs> oh yeah, no Neo is the total neutral mask. But this is this is in and of itself kind of a thing that's borrowed, I think, from books as much as anything else. But video games and movies have used this to kind of horrifying effect. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, in Rogue One, our, our main character doesn't really even have a backstory. I mean, she might as well be waking up with amnesia. Like, that's how much of a video game character she feels like to me. I mean, we've got one scene where she's a little girl, and she hides in a hole because her dad gets kidnapped. And then the next scene we see with her is like maybe 15 years later where she's in prison for 
some reason because she was with some other guy who you might know about if you watched a cartoon, I guess. I, I don't even know. But she starts the movie as this awesome, badass, anti-authority rebel who spends the entire movie doing things that people tell her to do, basically completing a series of missions to get a widget until she gets that widget. But, I mean, as a game, it makes sense. As a movie, it doesn't. But uh, as a movie, you have a, a, a bit where she's, like, beating up stormtroopers with a stick, and then there's a section where she's shooting, and then at the end, there's a, a big uh, platforming section before she has to, to fight the end boss. And, I'm, you know... At, I think I would really like this as a game, but as a movie, I was just falling asleep because there was no character, there's no humanity to it, you know? I don't know, man. You should watch it so you can hate it with me. <laughs> I, I will definitely keep that in mind. Uh, I've had a couple of people who are like, you haven't seen Rogue One, you need to see Rogue One. And it's, I like Star Wars perfectly fine. You know, I like Star Wars as much as the next guy, unless the next guy likes Star Wars more than I do, which is perfectly possible, let's be clear. But, like, I don't I don't have any particular investment in the idea of seeing anything in the theater. Like, the last movie I went to see in the theater was The Green Inferno, because Mr. J. Rose <laughs> wanted to go see that. Listen, listen, okay? I am friends with a lot of people who like terrible horror movies. I have seen Dr. Butcher, Medical Deviant, and a Cannibal Holocaust. Nice. Not of my own volition. But... So, you know, I've seen all three of the human centipedes. Why on earth have you... Okay, Dr. Butcher, I'm willing to defend. I, I still haven't seen the, the, the human centipede myself. That's, that's a conversation we can have off, <laughs> off the recording. But the, the core point of it is, I don't see a lot of movies in the theater. Outside of having seen The Green, the Green Inferno, I have mostly just seen movies that other people wanted to see, most of which are carbon copy video game movies. The last two movies that I can remember seeing were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies because a friend of mine, uh, Miss Lola Mendoza, also from the podcast, really wanted to see them. And when I say the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, I don't mean one and two. I mean one and the CGI one. And those were both basically video games brought to life. The CGI one is is a perfect example, in fact, to the point where the video game mostly just fills in gaps between stuff that happened in the film, but by and large is largely interchangeable as a concept. It's the, ga the gang gets together, they have their disagreements, there's a bunch of fights, there's a big fight at the end complete with a, a, a new metal song over it, and then... <laughs> There's, there's like this long cinematic, the characters fight against the boss monsters and ultimately save the day, roll credits. It's, it's, there is nothing divorcing this film from being a video game. And the Michael Bay film is basically the same way. It is, I will note, written much worse and much more infuriating in a lot of respects. But both of these things ostensibly are video games put onto celluloid. And so wait, I, I need to stop you for a second. So the two Turtles movies you're talking about are the fourth and fifth Turtles movies. So the cartoon that happened after the original trilogy and then the first Michael Bay? If we're talking about the actuality of their release, yes. Okay, okay. So you didn't yeah, so see the, the one with Seamus and... Uh, I did not. And, no, okay, okay. I was not asked to go see it, and I had no <laughs> desire to. I saw the first one, 
that was enough. There's exactly one good scene in that movie. One. And it's the elevator scene. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've seen I haven't seen that movie. There is this scene. It's about 10 seconds long. They get into the elevator, and there's music playing between the floors, and they're just kind of head-bobbing to it. That is the only scene in that entire fucking film that is anything remotely approaching personality. Everything okay. else about it is dick. And they saw Spider-Man 2 before they made that scene. and uh, Most likely, yes. Well, that was an awkward elevator scene. That wasn't like a head-bobbing elevator scene. So. Right, this was just the four characters just kind of being themselves for like 10 to 30 seconds. And it, it gave them more personality than the rest of the film did. The, the Spider-Man scene was informative of Spider-Man. It was, it was one sequence that informs the majority of Spider-Man as a character. But I, I think they go to different places, so I think it, it exists in a way that works. But, yeah, so, so bringing it back to the core point here is you look at these films, and I mean, they're both watchable, they're both enjoyable, but they are both basically films that are informed by video game experiences. You can look at the Ninja Turtles video games that have existed, and you can say, yeah, like, th this is a thing that I would totally expect to see in a Ninja Turtles game, whether it was developed by Platinum Studios or Konami or Ubisoft, or fucking whoever. Anybody who would have had their hands in it would have made a game that feels like this movie. Compare that to the original three Ninja Turtles movies. I mean, technically the original two, I... F fuck Turtles in time. But e Each one gets a little bit worse than the one before. Well, yes. maybe a lot a bit worse. Yeah, no, the first one holds up, and, you know, it's you're introduced to the characters in an interesting way, like there's interactions between the characters that feel real it's uh no it's totally a good movie yeah and, and not only that it's the way that the films come together the first film in specific though i i have a special place in my heart for the second one the second one kind of feels video gamey but not so much the first film the characters fail a lot oh yeah well ands they don't even kill the shredder like he you know casey jones you know ends up killing him at the end you yeah know? and not only that they don't even fucking lay a hand on the shredder he beats their asses yeah the only reason that shredder gets beaten is because splinter hobbled his ancient ass up to that roof and shredder's an idiot the second movie the second movie they don't even really beat the shredder then either like they 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 lay some hands on him but then he turns into kevin nash and, and then they, logs they, on him. yeah they they basically just dodge him while he breaks a boardwalk and kills himself it's the turtles are, are generally presented and, and part of it is because i'm sure like doing stuff in those suits is not super easy but it, it, it's largely presented as the turtles are as much capable of exploiting luck and good fortune as they are fighting well, that, that that movie also came out in a like a big backlash against violence uh, moment, because if if I remember correctly, the turtles basically put away their weapon after their first scene and fight with sausages and everything but their weapons. The second one was was way more affected by that. The first movie. Oh yeah, no, that's what I'm talking about. That the second movie, yeah. The first movie, they actually, ha you know, have their weapons in their hands and do things with them. And the, the second one, that's like, uh, we're going to fight with slapstick instead because this is a kid's movie. Yeah, and then, like, but the thing is, is that you look at the fight sequences that they have in the first movie. They have 
the first fight sequence that they have is largely implied, and it's it's off screen. The second fight scene that they have is in the subway where Raphael basically beats the shit out of a bunch of ninjas, more or less single-handedly, to save April. There's a fight scene between Casey Jones and Raphael that is much more about establishing characters than it is about fighting. And then you have the two major sequences in the middle. And, like, these are the two major points where fighting matters. Raphael gets his fucking shit kicked in by the Foot Clan. All of the characters fight the Foot Clan and have to run away because the Foot Clan decisively burns down April's apartment. And then there's a lot of nothing for a while. Well, And I feel like the distinction between that and the movies we get now is the same distinction we saw between Star Wars and the Star Wars prequels. Like, people will laugh at the, you know, Darth Vader-Obi-Wan fight, but that is has context and is based on what's going on inside the characters when they're fighting. Whereas, like, if you look at the Yoda lightsaber fight against Count Dooku, it's just a fucking video game. Like, nobody's going to really get hurt. Nobody's really... The, the kids need to slow down and sell, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's... it's and. <sighs> You can make the sort of argument that modern movies to to play off of, you know, the obvious wrestling joke that we're going for here is Ricochet versus Will Ospreay. It's a different kind of good. But here's the thing. In wrestling, not everything is Ricochet versus Will Ospreay. Yeah, exactly. You also have the revival. Yes, exactly. And I can love the revival versus DIY or to a lesser extent, the revival, you know, like the, the, the DIY versus the Authors of Pain. I can love Bailey versus Sasha Banks or Sasha Banks versus Charlotte Flair. I can love Ricochet versus Will Ospreay. I can love Shinsuke Nakamura versus Hiroshi Tanahashi for like the hundredth fucking time. All of those matches are different and unique and have different styles and tell different stories. When it comes to... And, and you can have the majority of these matches happen under the auspices of the WWE. Taking the stuff that happens independently out of the equation, there are still many different types of matches that ha happen under WWE's auspices in the United States. Oh, yeah. In the U.S., you're, you're basically going to get the same big blockbuster movie 60 times a year, with a couple of minor exceptions. Uh, well, uh, and usually what happens with the exceptions are something that was made for half or a tenth or 1% of the money. That's where you'll get something interesting happening. Like if you see a movie like Green Room, you see, you know, a movie where violence has consequences, where pain hurts and things matter. Or even uh, like something like uh, Deadpool, which is a movie that made a ton of money, but it was able to take chances because it didn't cost nearly as much as an Avengers movie. I mean, it had like, I don't know, maybe like a $35 million budget as opposed to a $135 million budget. So people were willing to, people aren't willing to, to gamble on anything that they can control with these movies where they're spending, you know, a hundred or two hundred million dollars. And it feels so much like everything's just kind of designed by a committee and a writer's room where, well, we have to have this, this, and this, and we need this to set up this part, and we need this for the trailers. And I mean just everything kind of fall falls to the wayside. Okay, so this is uh a related topic 
but a, a little bit of a tangent as well. So I'm told they're making a Nathan Drake movie. That's what I hear. Why? Yeah, because it's it's you're just playing through that movie. That's it's, it's yeah. kind of like when they made the Tomb Raider movie. You're you're just playing through that movie in a lot of respects. Admittedly, the original Tomb Raider as it existed then as a game was arguably a lot different from what a cinematic experience would be. If they made a Tomb Raider movie now, my question would be, but why? But at the time, at the very least, there was enough difference in how the game's executed versus how a movie would execute that there was an interesting concept there. Yeah, it's so it's so strange to me. It's like, well, I've got this... It, that would be like, well, we're going to make The Lord of the Rings, but we're going to make it a half an hour long just so you can experience it in a shorter amount of time with... I, it's it's baffling to me. Like, it, and it seems like it would just cost so much money to do something that you already exists. Yeah, and it's it's the problem is that a lot of games in general execute on that same level. Video game movies in the 80s, the 90s, and even I would say the early 2000s had the distinction available that they were taking something that existed in a different medium that was a different animal altogether, and they attempted to translate it to the big screen. In many cases, they did not succeed, but they were actively attempting to do something different. I didn't like the Super Mario Brothers movie, except as like, you know, uh, uh, ha-ha kind of thing. But it, at least, like, yeah, like, it, it's, thank you. Uh, at least the Super Mario Brothers movie is something different, you know? Well, yeah, at least you're translating a media. Like, you're not even doing anything at this point. It, you... The movie's going to be half CGI, and it already is in the game. It's so strange. Like, yeah, I definitely see that with uh, something like Mario or even Mortal Kombat. You just have... Right. You know. The original Mortal Kombat games were a fighting game. There was no narrative to speak of. We knew who Liu Kang was. We knew who everybody was. The narrative is, bunch of people have a tournament, punch face, Liu Kang wins. Cool. The film actually provides a degree of context that does not exist in the video games because it can't, it couldn't at the time exist in the video games. Street Fighter II, the animated movie, is tons of context applied to a video game that is basically just a tournament of punch face. Hell, as bad as it is, the original Street Fighter movie <laughs> attempts to apply some degree of context, and it sucks, except for the parts where Raul Julia is talking, but it, it's something different. If you look at movies that came out all the way up until... I would probably point to the Prince of Persia movie as kind of a, a cutoff point. Movies prior to this were at least attempting to translate a game that didn't exist in this specific language, that wasn't using this language to tell its story. And you would get something that would be unique. It probably wouldn't be any good, but at least it would be unique and different. Now we're at a point where video games are using cinematic language. And the problem is, is that AAA games are only using cinematic language. Yeah, that's the thing. And like, we, we, we had this conversation, I don't remember who exactly I had it with, because I just, it's uh, so many of these different conversations, they kind of run together. Talking about the idea of how things 
in terms of like their different languages work. I've actually had this conversation with a few different people, most most notably during the discussions about video game musicals. So with Lola and Alex. But video games have a unique language that they can use. And the best video games tell their stories in their own language. The video games that people generally tend to like the best, or the ones that generally tend to get like the, the Game of the Year awards, generally tend to speak less in the universal video game language and more in the language of film. And you'll, you'll see this pretty much every year. Games that have one or two significant innovations and speak mostly in film language tend to be the ones that people recognize in a given year. And then if you do that again, people like it less. Mass Effect 2 is a prime example. I love Mass Effect 2, but the majority of its narrative is done via cinematic language. Cutscenes are shot with very specific angles that are evocative of film. Dialogue sequences are just talking heads going back and forth to one another. A lot of the important stuff that happens is, you know, eventually cordoned off in, in various points to cutscenes, many of which have active time events associated with them. Do you want to press the button to be a renegade? Do you want to press the button to be a paragon? Fucking whatever. It was great. I loved it. But Mass Effect 3, outside of the shitty ending, did the same shit Mass Effect 2 did. And the ending itself shouldn't be enough to tank that game as hard as it did, but a lot of people were really fucking salty about Mass Effect 3 beyond its ending. And now we have Mass Effect Andromeda, a game that, even with all of the patches that they've put in to fix the angular problems and the animation problems and everything like that, is just doing what the last two games did. Yeah, and you're reaching a point of diminishing returns. And what's frustrating is that, I mean, gaming, video gaming is still a very young medium. And there's so much you can do with it that you don't have to be something else. Like, you don't have to turn games into something they're not. And, you know, I don't want to be like a bunch of Gen Xers complaining that millennials aren't playing video games right. Because, you know, if you enjoy Nathan Drake or if you enjoy any of these games, that's that's fine. But, I mean, it just seems like you are wasting the potential that you have there. I feel, you know, go out there and play the original Mario Brothers and look at, like, how the level design teaches you how to play that game instead of having a tutorial, you know? Like, it's, ah. Uh... And I mean, to be fair, I feel like tutorials are kind of a needed thing as games become more um, ludologically complex. We, we kind of need this stuff to happen. It's very difficult at this point for a game to work off of just player response once it gets beyond a certain degree of complexity. You know, that is true. If, if Herzog's Y came out today, it, it would need a fucking tutorial because it, it's just that complex of an experience The the games do need to hold your hand to a certain extent, but at the risk of being that old guy who, who's bitching at players and going back in my day and, and trying to, you know, get stuff over in that capacity. Listen, the cool, the cool thing about video games is that they're not movies. They're not books. They're not paintings. They're not sculptures. They are their own animal. And we should be able to do something different with that. And the problem that I have isn't that a lot of the best games kind of do the same basic shit narratively. The problem that I have is that 
a lot of cases when games attempt to experiment and do something different, nine times out of 10, at best, they're ignored. At worst, they get their nuts cut off for it. Like, I love Undertale as a concept. It's not my cup of tea as a game. But I love that people actually recognize that Undertale is a thing that should probably be analyzed and studied and hopefully not exclusively emulated, but at least learned from. But outside of that, a lot of the really notable indie games are notable to, like, a hundred people. You know, the Stanley Parable is neat, but the vast majority of players have not played a fucking Davy Reedon game. Sorry, they they haven't. And I don't necessarily need you to have done that, but, like, Polygon handed her story their Game of the Year award for 2016, I believe. And I don't remember exactly what year the game came out. It's I'm drawing a blank. But mm-hmm. that game was a game that I, I thought was interesting. And, you know, again, Polygon handed that their Game of the Year award, and I guarantee you m- m- less than 500,000 people played that thing. And it's neat that it got that recognition from Polygon. Nobody else fucking gave a shit about it in journalism, really. Yeah. And you look at Dragon Age 2, which tried to be a story that condensed the narrative a bit. And I totally understand people who bitched about the mechanics of that game because not everybody wanted to play a Dragon Age game that basically felt like Dynasty Warriors. And I totally get people who bitched about the aesthetics of that game because, yes, they used the same basic textures a thousand times in the course of that game. It it was unnecessary. But if you complained about the way the narrative was structured in that game, you're the reason why Mass Effect Andromeda happened. Because they tried to do something different in that game that I and others felt was really interesting. They told a story that was condensed surrounding a specific character and that wasn't about the end of the world. And everybody fucking hated it. And I don't I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why people didn't like that. But that was why we got Dragon Age Inquisition, a game that was literally about monsters trying to fucking end the world again. And it got all of the awards. And they're going to do that again for another Dragon Age, and it's probably going to get diminishing returns. Well, I think maybe the problem is with people. <laughs> maybe the problem is not with the games or the movies or the comics. It's just with people. And in order to like make back your investment in any of these things, you got to aim for the dead center and not make anybody uncomfortable. You want to give them the same thing that they're used to, the same thing that they've been playing for, you know, five years or ten years or however long. And uh, maybe we just need to fight all these people. I don't know. I'm just a cranky old man who wants my stories to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and who wants to play games uh, that actually want me to play them, like. Yeah, and it's, it's for me, it's, it's I'm somebody who's been playing games since he got a fucking Odyssey 2 in his house when he was, like, four, and actually wants to see everything evolve to the level that he was promised back when games started getting bigger and better in the 90s, instead of seeing everything just become the same shit that I've been playing every single fucking year, more or less. And it's... At the end of the day, people are going to like what they like, and even if it's not new to you, it's new to somebody, so they can continually do the same stuff ad infinitum, and new audiences will come around to it some capacity or another. If you like what you like, it's fine. You know, I I like the Persona games, so I'm not necessarily in a position where I can judge anyone as far as that goes. But it's my kingdom for some innovation in narrative delivery. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, all you can do is hope for the point of diminishing returns to inspire people to make new things or to try new things. And then that will spawn a bunch of clones and get another series of diminishing returns. And so on, the cycle will repeat itself until we're long dead. Because even even a movie like Suicide Squad, which was just out and out terrible, uh, still made you know seven hundred and fifty million dollars. So what what's what's the point of it all, Mark? Our choices are meaningless, and free will is a lie. Enjoy Arby's. <laughs> so I, I guess I guess we we've come to the point to the extent that there was ever going to be a point in this conversation. And the, the, the end lesson that we've taken away from this is that video games will probably forever try to be movies, and movies will forever try to be video games, and nothing matters. So, if you wanted a happy ending, here's a happy ending. Eventually, all of the people who are like us, who are pissing and moaning about this stuff, will get into the industry and change all of it, and then our kids will hate all of it. And by our kids, I mean your kids, because fuck you, I'm not having any. Well, no, I think I think the the lesson here is that if you're an old fuddy-duddy like you or I, just go support that indie game that does something different or go watch that indie movie that does something different like Hush on Netflix. Man, that was one of the best horror movies I've seen in years and nobody talks about it. It didn't really get a release or anything like that, but my gosh, that's great. And I feel like, you know, the next movie that guy makes is probably still going to be direct to Netflix or something like that. But we got to evangelize these things we like and talk about the good things and at least, you know, try to support the people who are attempting to make new and better things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I look at it from this perspective. There are always going to be people who are going to get into any industry and are going to come up with one idea that's going to be the same basic level of success, more or less, forever. You know, Grand Theft Auto 3 was a breath of fresh air at the time that it came out, and every single Grand Theft Auto has basically been that game to one extent or another ever since. Well, and so many other games have basically been that game. Yes. Yeah, it's like, uh, if you go back and listen to Lenny Bruce now, you're like, well, what's the big deal about Lenny Bruce? It's like, well, no, no, everybody has been doing what he did, but he was the first one to do that. Like, you don't understand, like, how influential he was at the time. Or even uh, Beethoven did all these things that nobody really did before Beethoven. It's, uh, and it becomes hard to recognize, you know, it's uh, people get trapped by their own success, to the point where they don't get the recognition they would think because a million clones pop out. But that's a good discussion for another time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's everywhere, though, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, from a cloning perspective, that's video games in a nutshell in a lot of respects. That's every genre of music. That's every film. But I, I, I feel like it's it's worth noting that quality will sometimes shine through and succeed. We pointed to Undertale as a video gaming example of a game that did not do anything that was expected. It did not do anything that people had seen before. And it's a game that very much questions the state of play and the player's cognizance of the experience. And it's it's a game that most people have recognized as being one of the greatest releases of its time. And at the time that a survey came out, was voted the greatest game ever made. And from a film perspective, 
Well, going back to Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn directed that. James Gunn was a guy who, for many years, was mostly notable for exactly two things. Tromeo and Juliet. Tromeo and Juliet. Being married to Pam from The Office. Being married to Pam from Fair. And fucking Scooby-Doo. Yeah, he also wrote the Dawn of the Dead remake, which makes me wonder how good that movie would have been had he directed it as well. Yeah, and but there was there was signs that he was going to be something. Like at the time that that movie was coming around, once again, J. Rose hates remakes. And I don't blame him. I, I generally am uninterested in that concept. He was willing to give the Dawn of the Dead remake a chance when he heard about it because he was like, it's the guy who made Scooby-Doo, which was actually watchable, and Slither, which was good, and Tromeo and Juliet. And he didn't hate that particular remake. That guy took, for all intents and purposes, two of the shittiest things you could have handed a director. A live-action version of fucking Scooby-Doo and a remake of a George Romero classic. And he did his best to knock them out of the park. And now he's the only guy making Marvel movies that aren't just Marvel movies, that aren't just the st- the superhero film anymore. Yeah, he's still a writer-director. He's an auteur for all intents and purposes. And like, I feel like that original Guardians movie is as close as we're going to get to something like the original Star Wars. You know, like this expensive movie that's weird that they people take a chance on. Yeah, so I feel like even like the 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 announced Han Solo films that they're talking about are basically just going to be Star Wars movies. Oh, by yeah. which I mean they're going to be superhero movies at this point. Yep, they're going to be live action video games. Uh all right. Well, we've concluded this thing about four different times now, and I feel like we're gonna talk. We could talk for another hour or so, but we should probably wrap it up since uh, we're pushing the lengths of a, a, a of a podcast that people are willing to download. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've had ones that hit like two hours that got more downloads than any of the others. So what the fuck do I know about length <laughs> about length quality? But I do feel as though, in terms of actually getting to a point that's worthwhile, we we've about mined everything we're going to out of this. So I do want to say. Thank you, Mr. Kennedy, for coming on to the podcast with me this evening. I do appreciate it. Oh, sure, sure. Hey, can I can I get a couple pimps? Oh, absolutely, but just give me a second to go into my thing, and then you can oh, okay, pimp okay. whatever you want. If you liked what you listened to here today, uh, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting, and you can also find it on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and basically anywhere else where podcasts are hosted. If you want to follow along with me on Twitter, you can do so over at twitter.com slash markbwriting. And you can find me on Facebook at markbwritinghome. And Mr. Kennedy, by all means, pimp your shit. All right. Well, you did Twitter, so I'll do Twitter too. Uh, WBZylo, uh, W-B-X-Y-L-O at Twitter. Uh, you can uh, buy my books off Amazon. We've got The Mosquito Song. We've got Thanksgiving for Werewolves. And we've got 100 by 100. Those are all by M.L. Kennedy, available on Amazon and at 57th Street Books if you're in Chicago. Uh, and since I ended it last time with a 100-word story, I'm going to give you a 100-word story this time, too. Oh, I appreciate and it. This one is called Quixotic. Alan looked up through wet and red eyes and said... I think there's still hope that everything is going to turn out okay. Lynn sneered. You're nuts. It's the zombie apocalypse. There's no getting better. Well, maybe you're right. But the only thing I can keep 
on the only way I can keep on going is to hope. I have to believe that safety and happiness and love are possibilities. I mean, otherwise, what's all this struggle for? Lynn contemplated this thought for a long while. Finally, she turned to Ellen and said, Maybe The Walking Dead isn't the show for you. Maybe you're right. The end. And that is 100 Word Stories, available on 100, uh, in the book 100 by 100, by me. I should also note that if you happen to have Amazon Prime, you can take out some of those books. And if you hold them out for an indeterminate period of time, you get like a dollar. Yeah, take down the man. I mean, a dollar every month might arguably be better than $6 once and then never again. That might be true. That might be true. And Although I do enjoy my $11 checks from the bookstore. <laughs> right on, man. Right on. Join us next time when our topic will be, they're seriously still releasing FMV video games in the year 2017, and Night Trap just got a fucking re-release on Steam and in physical copies for some reason. What the fuck? On behalf of ML Kennedy, I am Mark B. saying, stay safe out there, junkers.